Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday, bringing you issues surrounding the aftermath of crime, trying to build awareness, build bridges, enlighten and educate all of our audience to the issues that we deal with uh, directly and often do not uh, do not get uh, the media play that they, they need to. So with that, I say... Um, Welcome, everyone, and I hope everyone that is listening is in a safe place despite the uh, horrible weather that we have um, on the East Coast. Uh, we're, we're safe here in, uh, in Connecticut, and uh, I know that the Carolinas are experiencing some bad weather, too, but I'm sure that Delilah has uh, got the, uh, uh, everything under control there, and, uh, or else we wouldn't be on the radio. And uh, so I want to say uh, good good day, good morning uh, to you, Delilah. How are you? Hey, we're doing fine down here. Everything's okay. <laughs> um, okay. I'm really, really pleased to have the guests that we, we've gotten for this week. And I think, you know, the issues that we're going to touch on are something that, once again, are in the forefront of the news almost every single day. Um, and that's this epidemic of shooting, and why is this happening, and how are our police officers who are right in the front lines of everything every single day, um, why are they all of a sudden the target, it seems, um, of shooters? So it's, it's yeah. going to be extremely informative from the police officer's point of view, and um, I think that's it's going to be a very good show. Yeah, definitely. I, I and just let me give a very, very brief thumbnail sketch um, of each person. A little bit. We have um, two two uh, chiefs of police that we have had on my show, part of the Shattered Lives family before, and uh, they're so well respected and accomplished in their own rights. Uh, we have Chief M- Marty Sumner from High Point, North Carolina, who um, took over as chief in High Point. I believe in. Uh, 2012 and has uh, over a 30-year career um, under his belt. And uh, as far as I know, the, the, uh, has put his uh, his department on the map with his um, domestic violence uh, offender-based deterrence program, which we're going to hear a little bit of an update on today because it is na- uh, National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we're so proud to... Um, know that he's continuing this fight and getting the word out there. And then we also have Chief Matt Catania, who has been on our show two different times from Plainville, Connecticut, uh, who has had a a long career since 1981, primarily in municipal policing, having to do with domestic violence, and is very focused on victim rights. And we had him on for a couple of shows with regard to – police officer Robert Holcomb and uh, the aftermath of the parole reversal which was really really a fascinating case and I'm so pleased to have him on again so let me say welcome to both of you and thank you so much for being with us good morning Donna good morning Delilah Chief Matt here hey this Uh, is Chief Marty Sumner here good to talk to both of you again good morning Chief yeah good morning um, well, uh, with that brief introduction, um, I, I guess before we get to our topic, which can be quite controversial, um, we, you know, we're going to try to do sort of a broad brush of the issue with regard to looking at police shootings from the various aspects. We're not here to provide, you know, um, miracle cures or solutions because we cannot, but at least we can shed light on it. We can we can we can discuss it from different perspectives, and I think it's very valuable to have somebody from two different geographic areas, um, people that, that come from um, different life experiences, different approaches in policing, et cetera. 
But I just want to take a couple of minutes out before we do that because, um, Chief Marty, um, because you are so entrenched with our um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence issues with your with your stellar program, could you uh, give us a brief update in terms of what's going on with that today? I'll be glad to. After we talked a year ago, we now have three full years of implementing the offender-focused domestic violence initiative. And the results are going to come out in a report very soon that was uh, funded by a COPS office grant. But what I have in my hand, I've already seen the results, and it's very, very, very encouraging. Number one, we almost eliminated homicides-related domestic violence. In the last five years, we've only had one, and then the five years before that, we had 17. So that's tremendous gain, and that's a, that was the primary focus of the effort. We also have reduced victim harm. So even when we have reports now of domestic violence, the percentage of time when the victim suffers a serious injury has decreased dramatically. We also see a reduction in repeat calls. And what I'm most happy about, because we were trying to control offenders, is across the city, over 1,500 offenders over the last three years were notified and put on notice in one way or another, and there's different levels. And only about 14% of those have reoffended in that three-year period. And then wow. since we talked, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's really really getting to the heart of the matter to try to really change what what uh, culturally the, the city and how they respond. But and then this was replicated by Lexington, North Carolina Police Department a year ago, and they've gotten the same results. So I think think it could be easily replicated. I think it'll travel, and it got all the desired goals achieved well i just can't say enough about that and you know it's it's such it's so refreshing to know that there are that that this is a very unique approach and i tried to um pave the way in my state but it's sort of the old tried and true methods and i'm I'm still going to try to see if we can get them to pay attention and maybe we share the information with with matt katania too because i know he's a very open open to information, perhaps we can open the door with regard to this approach too. And so we're very, very encouraged by that. And I know that with the Carolinas being, uh, you know, especially South Carolina being so, um, you know, number one in, in, in homicide with regard to intimate partner violence, um, it's very important there. So perhaps, you know, we can continue to make inroads there. So let's do keep doing the push. And I know you're continuing to do presentations throughout the nation, so I would love to invite you here <laughs> if we can. Um, so thank you for sharing that information, and we can certainly give people a reference at the end of the show. She, uh, Matt, um, I'd like you to, to tell us, um, you, you attended an event yesterday at the Henry Lee Institute that, that has direct bearing on the topic today of what we're going to talk about can you give us a, a brief summary of what, what went on? Well, unfortunately, Don, I didn't get to spend much time at the symposium. It was a two-day symposium. Uh, just in a nutshell, the symposium was the 24th annual Arnold Markle Symposium. Arnold Markle was a renowned prosecutor in the state of Connecticut, a wonderful man, a professor, and someone who took teaching and training very seriously for the officers. Some 30 years ago, I attended a seminar uh, with prosecutor, then-prosecutor Arnold Markle, uh, but he was just a wonderful man who passed on a, a tremendous uh, legacy of education, the area of what police need to do to put their cases together properly to be able to present in court in the appropriate manner. Uh, the whole symposium yesterday was around police shootings and police uh, uh, involved killings. And uh, they had Dr. Michael Batt in there from New York State Medical Examiner's Office. And those of you familiar with uh, Dr. Batten's presentations on CNN and Fox News, he's, he's quite uh, renowned as a uh, medical examiner. They had Chief Melvin Tucker and uh, maybe Chief Sumner's familiar with some of these people, some from his area of the state. Obviously, he was hosted by uh, the world-renowned forensic uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Henry Lee. It was quite fascinating. I didn't get to spend a lot of time there, but uh, it was really focused on the Ferguson incident. Uh, 
the uh, prosecutor there, Robert McCullough, uh, was there. And I got to speak with them a little bit informally on the site, but I, I don't have a lot for you on the actual symposium. Right. Well, at least we know that it's available, and perhaps um, I know I did put up a post yesterday morning, and um, I'm sure that on Dr. Lee's website, of which he has about three or four, um, yes. people get more information, correct, on that? Yes, that's correct. Great. It's the, great. Uh, I, I believe, the Henry Lee Institute.com. Uh, there'll okay. be some information posted on that, and the symposium is going on today. It was well attended. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, isn't it, it? It's good to know that you know this is in the forefront of other people's minds. And I don't know how many other radio shows are doing what we're doing, but at least we're trying to do our part here. And I'm so glad to be able to have the the relationship with a couple of police chiefs such that we can we can talk about the matter at hand today. So thank you for that update, Matt. And um, I'm not sure you know who we want to say in terms of who goes first, but. I think we should we should um start with maybe a, maybe an overview of police shootings shootings in general. Um you know we we know what's reported in the in in the media these days but from your perspective I know you know a lot more information than than what is put out in the media and more accurately so. So perhaps maybe from each of your perspectives maybe geographically or just from your point of view what 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 can you talk about in terms of generally what's going on with with police shootings, both the, the police shooting and being shot at, or you know whichever perspective you want to take it from. So um, let's see, Marty, would you like to go first? Sure, I'll I'll kick in a little here. Okay. I think most of your listeners would be surprised to find out because if you see media reports and headlines, you get a different perception. So I tell people here, be an informed consumer of the news. Here's here's a fact for you. To date, the Washington Post has one of the best sites that I've found that tracks police shootings in the country. And this far into 2015, there's been 748 people killed by police in shootings. I think people are really shocked to find that number is that high. And 28 of those are reported to be unarmed African-Americans, which is the ones that are getting the most attention in the news media. So that's that's really what some of the folks in the country are most concerned about is the police shootings involving unarmed suspects. But the, the sheer number of armed encounters that we are dealing with, particularly ones where the people, it's unprovoked attacks upon the police officers and mostly involves mental illness, is really, really a grave concern to law enforcement. Wow. Uh, those numbers are those numbers are just staggering. Um is there anything that you can say with regard to in your in your geographic area have have things you know, have things escalated? Are they pretty much the same or are they being reported, you know, uh, accurately or what what can you say about your, your corner of the world? Yeah, the uh, typically the region, the South, mostly has more shootings annually than and more officers killed than the other regions of the country. And but this year, if you look at Officer Down Memorial page, which is out there, and a lot of people follow that, there's been 98 officers killed, which is two percent increase over last year. But really, nationally, the instances where the officers were killed by gunfire is down 17 percent even though some high-profile cases might lead you to believe otherwise. But in North Carolina, we don't, I have not seen that many attacks, unprovoked attacks on officers, but the instances where we're involved in shootings has increased. And I, in my department, had a fatal officer-involved shooting just last month. Wow. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Um, that let's, let's see how, how it compares with the, with the Northeast or what, or what um, Matt has to say, Matt. The same, the same type of uh, question here. What, what would be your comment? Well, Donna, you know, I, I completely concur with the numbers that uh, Marty's putting out. In, uh, but I have to say that, for my specific area, 
there's a very pragmatic view of what's going on. Each individual chief in our area, and as you know, in Connecticut, we have 169 individual com- communities, which is reflective of New England. Uh, Marty's numbers, uh, I have seen them. I know they're accurate. I know they're uh, they're they're true. However, in a pragmatic view of what's going on in, in our area, we had a officer-involved shooting in 2011, and I have to say the uh, the public was very supportive of us, of our officers. Uh, the uh, civil litigation was very, very uh, troubling. It still goes on to this day. We still haven't settled this case. I can't give you a lot of details of the case, but I can say to you that the public's biggest concern in our area was the civil uh, you know, uh, impact of, of the dollar value assigned to this. It not That's not intended to say that the public wasn't concerned about the issue. I, I think from a pragmatic point of view, the trust in the police, and this is where I, I have basically focused my uh, concerns with the media's attention to police officer-involved shootings, it tends to erode the trust of the general public. And, and Marty alluded to this a bit. The public tends to take the media's information as gospel, as truth. Mm -hmm. And on many of these occasions, it couldn't be further from the truth. And I think that's what's sort of inspired me. And and again, wearing my heart right out of my sleeve here, uh, we sort of got prepared for a lot of this through the Trayvon Martin case. And then, you know, there wasn't a police officer involved shooting, but we started to see how the media was going to respond to this, how they were going to uh, weave a racial divide into their presentation. And uh, quite honestly, my interest in this only peaked after the Michael Brown incident. So I reveal a little bit of, uh, you know, the Achilles tendon in this, in this issue. I don't think I'm alone uh, in police administrative circles in my area uh, that really was the Michael Brown case that brought our attention to police officer-involved shooting, police department reputation, how the media was going to play that, and how they were going to exacerbate the weaknesses in any of those areas and really leave us, you know, sort of on the, uh, the cold side of the equation. The police became uh, the convenient enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is it um, that things really have escalated with regard to this or um, uh, deteriorated, uh, deteriorated, whatever you want to say, or is it just, we we haven't known about it in, in t- until these high profile incidents. I mean, what what is what is the is the true orientation here um, with with regard to the issue? Um, can e- either of you speak to that? <clears throat> well, if I may, uh, personally, we're seeing very little feedback from the community as far as distrust for the police, specifically in my area. I can really only speak matter-of-factly about um, my little corner of the world. Uh, but I, I will say there is some impact in it. There is there is some palpable, uh, you know, unrest with the community, even in my small community, as far as uh, trusting the police officer. I think, I think it has had, I think these incidents uh, have had a negative impact on community trust. Mm-hmm. How about you, Marty? What do you think? I, I think I agree with that completely. The impact is three, four years ago, the presumption when a police chief gets up and talks about the facts of a shooting, people took that and they trusted what they were relaying. And there's a little bit more of the police officers must be wrong unless they can prove unequivocally that they did the right thing, which is a big shift for us. And what the chief knows when we have a shooting, there's we have to put out the right information. We can't put misinformation out, and that can't go out at the speed of light. But all the other media reports and supposed eyewitnesses and folks who post things, they're putting a bunch of misinformation out. It puts us in, in a very difficult place to try to get facts out, but also make sure they're accurate so we don't have to keep correcting ourselves. Well, if I, is there if I is there that. any accurate? I mean, is there any body that oversees this and says this is this is the actual these are the actual facts? And but once it gets out there, they can do whatever they want to with those facts. Report it well, however if, they like. Is if I could right? jump in, if I could jump in, Donna, on Marty's okay. comment, uh, which I'm sure. completely in agreement of. Yep. Uh, 
here's what I see going on. We, we the state of Connecticut has a policy where uh, if there is a police-involved shooting involving a municipal officer or a city officer, uh, the state's attorney's officer office, excuse me, assigns an investigator immediately. We notify immediately. They assign investigator immediately, and the state police for the state of Connecticut investigate the officer-involved shooting. So we have this multi-layered inspectional process that's watching over the municipal and city police officer when they're involved in a shooting. Now, just recently, and I'd say within the last year, the state of Connecticut has uh, changed that process in, in I, I believe, as a knee-jerk response to the negative uh, feedback and impact that the media has brought forth, the state of Connecticut has imposed another layer in the inspectional process wherein it's not good enough any longer to put the regional investigator on that case. Now they're going to change it up and bring an investigator from another geographic area. Again, this is just that simple change, maybe in the, the minds of the, uh, the listener, it's not a big deal. But to uh, a police administrator, basically they're sending a message that we're going to attempt to make this process so transparent that it becomes not only unwieldy, but, but unnecessary. So now we're making this change into the next step of our investigational process for police officer-related uh, officer uh, shootings in Connecticut, where we're going to get an investigator that comes from a different area just to show or, or at least try to promote or prove that there is no bias. That to have no more objectivity, rule. Matt? Well, I, I don't believe that's the case. I believe uh, that these investigators are professionals. I think the professionals in our area... Look, at, we're, we're, if you want to look at it through the lens that we're all one large brother-sisterhood, I mean, you could let your imagination run wild that these investigators are going to lean towards the police, but I've been in this almost 35 years, and, and I have to say I've never experienced where anyone leaned my way to favor me. So I, I mm -hmm. just don't have, that, I don't have that perspective. Yeah, you don't think it's necessary. Well, Mar uh, Marty, what's, what are, what's it like procedurally with with regard to uh, North Carolina? It's, it's been – North Carolina's pretty progressive. We all, always had a policy here in this department. Any officer involved shooting, we immediately call the State Bureau of Investigation. They do an investigation separate from ours. We'll do an administrative investigation internally to make sure we follow the policy and training and equipment worked. And they'll do a separate criminal investigation, and then they send their findings to the district attorney, and they, the district attorney decides whether or not it goes before a grand jury. So we have always had that. Now, the problem with the transparency is that still takes months, and they don't talk about their investigation or release facts, and that is for the chief is still left with trying to make sure that the community has some confidence in what we did whereas we're not really supposed to be talking about it. And when you when you can't comment, it kind of makes you look like you're, you're trying not to say something. But, you know, when you let somebody else do an investigation and it's potential criminal, you can't comment on it. Wow. Then, yeah, that, that's well, really a problem. Go ahead, Delilah. Don't you find that, you know, when, when you have the combination of mainstream media plus all of the Internet people trying to get the scoop out first, it ends up equaling a problem with the truth. And when the truth ultimately comes out, it's usually not nearly as bad as, as what's initially reported, is what my experience has told me. You're, you're very informed, and you're correct. Uh, months later, when the actual facts come out, nobody even remembers. They'll be still thinking about the headline that you know was getting out there quick as I can, not really worrying about whether or not I can back it up in every time, every every statement that's made. And that that is the dilemma for the chiefs. You know, every chief now is trying to handle that a little differently, but I'm putting out more information on our shooting last month. I put more out faster than my police attorney would have really liked me to, than I would have done five years ago, but I wanted to make sure that I got enough out to the public that I could make sure there wasn't any misinformation put out there or I could clean up anything that was misstated. Wow. And that's good. Is there a single source or a couple? I know, you, you Marty, you made reference to the uh, Washington Post, but if if we want to be accurately informed and we know that whatever this is has a, 
a short time frame and then it's on to the next shooting. But if we want to know, um, is there a, an accurate source that we should go to, to to find out what the true facts are? I mean, should we be going to our local police department's website? You say we, that you can't report a lot of it, but how do we how do we as citizens and as crime victims feel more comfortable find the truth? If, if I may, Donna, I don't, I don't honestly think that you can. I, the lack of information that comes out initially is purposeful. We can't give the public enough information, in my opinion, uh, that would give them uh, facts and circumstances that would lead them to believe we were being truthful. There's a certain amount of information that is purposefully held back. So there is no one single source. There is no, uh, you know, news outlet or even the police spokesman or the police chief, him or herself, can give enough information initially. And as memories fade in the public's mind, on the public's perception side, and as the media takes the story where they want to take it, there's a great amount of distortion that's just inherent in these cases. And you know, I don't want to guide the topic back to this area, but what I was thinking about when Marty was talking was in this equation of who's getting information, who's able to get feedback or whatever. We, you know, we, we have to remember that there's a police officer or police officers involved in these shootings, and they're going through uh, great turmoil during this. Uh, and in Connecticut, we're a strong union state, so these officers have uh, due process rights and and other uh, processes that they're coping and dealing with. Plus, they're dealing with the very human, uh, you know, interaction of uh, wounding a person or taking one's life. There's a lot that goes on with this that the public gets a soundbite from uh, the news channel, and they're off, they're off to the races in their mind with their own perception as far as what's going on. Uh, absolutely. I just want to make reference to, to our last week's show. Uh, Delilah, you remember this when we had Jan Upchurch with regard to uh, her her husband was killed in the line of duty and the organ, police organization that she's involved with in terms of keeping, keeping um, it in the public's eye about this is long-term grief. It's not just a soundbite in terms of what police officers go through in terms of of their of their grieving etc and she she was on to talk about victim victim services she works for the doc in um in uh in phoenix and that was a fascinating show just if i can give my little commercial you want to go back to last week i think that that would also be a fascinating show for people to listen to so i so agree with you know what what you were saying marty um are we are we looking at these now if we try to get a broad perspective in terms of some of these um, things? Are are there, are there copycats out there? Are these isolated incidents? Are people just going going wild? I mean, how do we how do we look at this? Do we have to just look at each incident as an isolated incident and investigate them on the merits and not? not see this as a epidemic across the country uh, that we should have mass hysteria who would like to take that one marty i think what i tell people that you really should do is we should investigate the circumstances of these officer involved shootings especially the ones where the officers were targeted we need to delve into the background of the people who committed those we need to look for those intervention points those commonalities Mental illness, I've already stated, is probably one that you're going to find in several of the most recent ones, which should be of great concern. And mm -hmm. you can you can determine some things that we may be missing, or that maybe there's some procedures that could be placed to to try to identify some of these folks ahead of time. But only by doing a real serious investigation into what's happened and who did it and how they achieved and how that they got the hold of the weapon, but the fact of the matter is when somebody is willing to sacrifice their life to take yours, it's very difficult, very difficult to prevent that. But they could be identified ahead of time in many cases. Yeah. You know, Donna, if I could just tie into that. Mm -hmm. Agreeing with Marty fully, but adding to that thought process that, uh, and this is my perception, I'm not going to back this up with the official calculated data, but 99.9% .9 of the 
officers who wear the uniform, uh, the badge and gun, so to speak, are honorable people that are trying to honor their oath to the public, the protect and serve mission. And I think the public, if they could just take that into consideration that we all deserve the perspective of innocence, uh, you know, before proven guilty, that we are all you know, on that side of the the process, not to jump to judgment, to try to control those emotions. There there are going to be those times when officers make mistakes. There are going to be that one bad apple in however many thousand officers. No one's going to dispute that. I think if we continue as a profession to root those people out, we continue to recruit appropriate members to law enforcement. We continue to discipline and hold people accountable for proper performance. I think we can uphold our image and maintain the public trust that I believe uh, the American police officer deserves. But I think we have to pay attention to it. And obviously, in my almost 35-year career, we have to pay attention to it now more than ever in my career. And, uh, you know, my family goes back to the 19. Uh, late 1950s, 1960s in policing, and uh, I never remember this topic getting this much conversation at the dinner table or at symposiums or anywhere. So it's a it's a good message to uh, police administration uh, or police administrators specifically. We've got to pay attention to our officers' performance so we can maintain public trust. Uh, absolutely, um, you know, and I just think the media is is turns out to be the enemy here because they want to sensationalize everything. But, um, Marty, you and I had spoken earlier this week, and, you know, there there was um, some conversation, and maybe we can get into this somewhat because we all come from different geographic areas, large towns, uh, 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 cities, whatever, um, that all law enforcement are not created equal. Um, and I wondered if you could address that a little bit. I don't know if this really gets into different kinds of training or how we recruit police or whatnot. Can you can can you speak to that a bit? Yes, and I do like to agree with Matt. The profession is sound, and the vast millions of contacts we have with the public are positive every day. And mm-hmm. that's probably what's missing from the national conversation a lot of the times is the context. But you're right. Not every department is created equally. Every state's training and standards are not exactly the same. So it does vary across the country. So North Carolina is pretty progressive. We've got very high training and standards. We've got here in this agency, my officers get more than 150 hours of in-service training every year. Mounts to a full day every other month. So the training is ongoing. Very high. Tough training on the basic law enforcement training side, more than 600 hours. And you got field training. You you weed some people out who wouldn't be fit for the job through background and the, the hiring standards themselves. And all that is to get the right person to try to do the job. But Matt's right. You still got to have a good system of discipline to hold people accountable. And that's that's critical. And that's done very differently in the different parts of the country. In North Carolina, one of the problems, public perception and transparency we have, is there's a law that says that anything in that officer's personnel record cannot be released. Matter of fact, it's a misdemeanor if I was to release it. So I can't even tell you if I discipline an officer. And so that does not help transparency at all here. And, you know, the law is very differently across the country, but yes. There are very different places, and the size of the agency, I think, is another one. Some agencies, if you've got thousands and thousands of officers, consider how difficult it would be to change a policy, to train a new tactic, to review every use of force. My agency's 239 sworn. I'm able to do that. In some places, it's just very difficult. So, Just to uh, tie into that, in the state of Connecticut, our disciplinary records are wide open, but I I have to say uh, I I don't see that as making the impact that one might think it would. Uh, I just recently went through a Freedom of Information hearing where uh, so much information was made available to the requesting party and and thereby to the public, let's say, but uh, I don't see that making the big impact that 
uh, you know, the lay person or the non-sworn person might think it would. I don't see that it it harms us, and I and I certainly do, uh, you know, ride that topic to my benefit that we are transparent with it. But it's just not making the impact at times that that it needs to, and and that comes down to our uh, strong labor oriented state here in Connecticut. Uh, some of the disciplinary process that I may see uh, or, or deem effective as a police chief may not be reviewed in kind by the uh, panel of arbitrators at the state labor board. So this, this gets deeper and deeper as far as how we maintain that public trust. But in Connecticut, we have the training, as Marty described, down south. We, we have very similar standards. We operate under uh, a post uh, a training model, a uh, police officer standard training council model that's been very, very effective in improving the quality of the officers. But it's just expanding to the point where it's almost unrealistic. It's it's a minimum for us of 38 weeks before we put an officer on the road. These municipalities are under a tremendous amount of strain paying the bill for the training, the full salary, and, and we're not putting the officer on the street. So the impact on the street level is zero while we train them for 22. Now we're going, I think, to 24, 26 weeks with our academy, and we have a minimum of 14 weeks of uh, San Jose model-style uh, field training in our state. So a minimum right now of 38 weeks before the officer ever makes a, you know, the impact uh, in the community. So that's the standard here. What's what's the what's the standard with regard to uh, your your area, Marty, in terms of before they hit hit the bricks, so to speak? Nine months it would take for you to come through the door, get an application, and then actually be riding solo patrol. We ride one officer to a car here. There's there's a basic law enforcement training, and then another 14 weeks of field officer training. So it's about nine months. They're the training is pretty extensive. Mm-hmm. Sound, it, it sounds like, well, I think, yeah, and then, I mean, it, it, does, does the uh, financial impact enter the equation, too, where they're being, you know, they're being compensated because they are a police officer, but they haven't really started in action. Is, is, that, is that true also? Well, that's the cost of doing business. We have to that's the cost hire of these doing business. We have to hire them and put them through school to make sure they're properly trained. And the job is just so complicated, it requires that level of training just to get them up to be ready to answer calls on their own. Yeah. I had a meeting with a county sheriff the, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that he brought up, which I thought was is probably a universal thing, and that is continuing education training. Um, I know in our area in South Carolina, a lot of times that – just means you know sitting in on a couple hour presentation or a lecture and taking trying to absorb that information that you're given and sometimes the information is very good and other times it's not um but his his wish i guess was um especially in the area of human trafficking which we is what we were talking with him about was that there needs to be more hands-on training where somehow or another someone who's an expert in their field um, either rides with the officers or, you know, gets hands-on where they can actually apply what they're learning in these continuous continuous education lectures. How do you feel about that? Well, Delilah, if I, if I could jump in on that. Uh, we, we do very similar style training of what you're describing. Uh, you know, again, this goes back to the adage that professors and teachers uh, at all levels of education uh, have to battle with, and it's whether or not uh, we've imparted true learning in the students. So, uh, you know, the mind isn't an open vessel, uh, so to speak, where they just where the professor pours knowledge or the police instructor pours knowledge into these officers. They have to actually have the uh, hands-on experience. Police work will always be a doing profession. It's it's never going to be purely theory. It's never going to be purely academic. So the training and education aspect of it is wonderful, but, you, but you're hitting on a point that we can't really determine unless we see through demonstrated performance, demonstrated behaviors that learning took place, that it is part of their 
day-to-day regimen to do things in in specific or prescribed uh, manner during these processes. So, again, this is this is a very unique profession, and it's not one that is controlled by a classroom environment. It will never be purely academic. So there is there is a lot of uh, question mark over police performance because it is the nature of the work. Yeah, I think it's a very, uh, uh, you know, a, a very good point, well taken. I know that when when uh, victim services first started to come to the forefront under the Reagan administration, they had crime victim advocates riding with police in the police cars to um, to to families' homes to to get a sense of you know what what their role was going to be, and I think. We all need to get back to that where we actually do the the demonstrated model more so than the academic. Well, not more so, but at least have you know fifty fifty or more so, so that you know so that people can apply those skills. Delilah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, It it is Um, with regard to um, getting back to the to people's perception of the police and and fear that they're not as competent, et cetera. In in being a homicide survivor and crime victim, um, that may be impacting uh, um, new crime victims' perception of, can I trust the police? I need their help. I'm vulnerable. But yet look what's happening. They're all, they're all a bunch of, Whatever when we see all this on the on the media in terms of the impact for crime new crime victims these days what what do you have to say about that? I mean, I think we are more vulnerable because of what we're we're seeing happening with police, and it does not make us feel comfortable, and we're already vulnerable because of the crime that has happened in our family. Well, Don, I think from my perspective, uh, I'm very jaded. I, I admit that I'm very jaded in my view at this. I think the media presents these issues uh, with an agenda. Uh, I think that's what sells. I think that's their agenda, what sells, what promotes readership, what promotes viewership, etc. cetera. Uh, and so I do think we as a society are more, more vulnerable Um but I think a lot of this has to do with the willingness on the community's part, on the citizenry's part, to accept what the media is saying. We don't see the hue and cry from the citizenry that we want the media to get it right, but we certainly do hear from the public that we want the police to be, uh, you know, perfection personified. And so I do think we are more vulnerable. I think the the natural uh, reaction on the police side during this wave of energy coming out of media, community, et cetera, is uh, to be more cautious, to be more, uh, how would you say, reticent to, uh, you know, uh, hit a problem head on. And, And the media keeps drilling down on restrictions they would like to see in law enforcement. And I think the police knee jerk response is okay. And if that's what you want now, no one's going to go on, you know, in front of the mic or uh, in front of the camera and say, we're backing down. And I would like to think that we're not. And my brothers and I, as you know, in law enforcement, um, you know, my blood brothers and my my brothers and sisters in blue, that's not the way we're made. I I think we're the ones running to the sound of gunfire. I believe we're the ones running to the sound of gunfire, not running away. But I can't help but be jaded and think that it does have a negative impact, which makes us more vulnerable. Well, how do we, at that point well taken, but how do we make the crime victims in the acute phases here feel feel more comfortable about policing? Marty, do you have any comment about that? I think you absolutely can trust the police, and I think every time there's a critical incident, we prove that, and we show that very much. And all these questions about law enforcement performance, this is from a small group in the country. It's not that widespread. It's talked about a lot, but my community, I did 156 community meetings last year. 
the vast majority of the people I came in contact with trust the police. They did have some questions. How do you know your officer is doing the right thing? How do you, how do you know your officer is prepared to deal with my 17-year-old when he's going to be disrespectful to the officer's authority? You know, mm-hmm. how is your training on de-escalation? They they have questions, but the vast majority of the people we serve, they don't mistrust us, and the victims don't mistrust us at all for the right reasons. And, and I would say this. If you hear or you see something you think is misconduct, think bad actor. Don't think bad or prejudicial department because it's one person's act perhaps. And I don't think it would be fair. Let's say if a doctor was performing a surgery and the patient died on the table, we wouldn't immediately indict the entire medical profession and say you can't trust doctors. Right. Well, that's true. I mean, it it brings me to the point of, what police officers are human, they make mistakes. So if they make a mistake and, you know, what, you know, and there's the procedure for retraining or, or disciplinary measures or whatnot, what what would you say about a police officer that, that makes a mistake? Can that person come back? Can that person um, rectify and still come back and, and be a, a very competent um, officer in this climate? Well, I think from my perspective, Don, if I may, it, it depends on the level of the incident. It depends on the outcome. Uh, there uh-huh. are there are different shades of gray with this. So I think in, in many cases, the officer can come back and be productive. But obviously using Ferguson as the, as the, uh, the big issue uh, that's used often to reflect on these incidents, there was no way uh, through my cop-colored glasses, uh, the officer was going to be able to come back from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like I say, I think it's it's human nature for for people to, you know, occasionally not n- not do the right thing in, in a, a very acute situation where you've got, the, you know, is it most of the time you've got seconds to make a, a life, determining decision is that what it comes down to most often when you're talking about using using a lethal weapon no absolutely it is and the the dilemma for the officer i don't think the public understands maybe i can state it is think about this you got to survive that second but matt already alluded to it you got to survive the entire incident emotionally and psychologically as well which many of our officers involved in shootings even if they survive that incident you look two years later they're probably not in law enforcement anymore it's it's very difficult to survive the whole incident but here's what you got to worry about or what you got to think about the faster you use deadly force when confronted with a threat safer it is for you but potentially the harder it is to justify the longer you wait Maybe the easier it is to justify, but the more dangerous to you. So you've got to rely on your training and what you see and act reasonably and hope that the system won't judge you with 20-20 hindsight. And so it, it comes down sometimes to how did somebody else perceive it, but they were not in the officer's shoes, and they didn't see what he saw or knew what he knew at that time. And that's that's another problem with with people who are Monday morning quarterback, and it's not that simple. Right. Well, you know, we we haven't really talked. I think this is a big concept in policing, and a lot of people don't maybe realize about. Isn't it? Isn't the goal to de-escalate any any incident that that you come across versus you know, uh, you know, tit for tat or you know, revenge or or however you want to term it. You you always want to make the situation less. And I don't think that the public under understands that that's the goal when there are certain methods and maybe that isn't always possible, and that's where some of these events end up happening, you know, in fatalities. Is that is that true, or am I do I have it wrong? That's definitely the goal, and that's many of the tactics we train with defensive tactics, and we mirror that with scenario based. Uh, force-on-force training here. We're very fortunate to have a training facility that most don't. That's great, but you're still dependent upon the actions of the offender. What did the offender do? And when there is a deadly weapon involved, the officer's actions are to try to stop the threat, period, whatever that takes. So 
We're reacting many times to what the offender does. The offender's behavior is what really really justifies and or calls for use of deadly force. And I think some people miss that occasionally. They skip right over, well, what was the offender doing? They skip that part. Right. They just focus on what the police officer was doing. Is that right? And that's what comes to the forefront in the media? Well, exactly, because I had a, a officer-involved shooting three years ago, and the the person charged two police officers with two nine-inch butcher knives. Fortunately, it was caught on videotape, and some people kind of questioned, well, did they have to shoot him? Well, I assure you, after you saw the videotape, and it never got publicly released, but I showed it to the family. I asked them if they wanted to see it, and at least one family member came in. When they saw the video, and I asked her if she did, she have any questions? No, not a, not a one. So sometimes you can question it if you're not there, but I assure you it's very real if you're standing there when somebody's uh, threatening you with deadly force. Absolutely. Wow. Um, you know, I, I we have about nine minutes or so left to our show, so time's, time's going by very quickly, unfortunately. Um, but a, a couple more things, and maybe I'll throw it back to Delilah. Um, we just wanted to know, you know, a lot of these incidents that make it to uh, national media, are they, is there a preponderance of people now using their personal cell phones as private citizens and saying, look, look, look what I saw and I captured this, and they're sending it to their local media versus going to their police department or calling them and trying to, they're they're trying to put it out there on social media versus going through the proper procedures of calling law enforcement first. Is that what's causing a lot of the problem? These private citizens are trying to act like, you know, um, you know, police police themselves when they really don't know, you know, how to handle it appropriately. Either of you? I'll let Matt start. Okay. Well, I, I'll just tell you, okay. it is problematic because when it's stuck out there with no context and no verification, people are left to draw potentially the wrong conclusion from what they saw. And I would love for them to bring it to us, but that's okay. If it gets out there, I'll get it off. I'll get it off Facebook, or I'll get it off the evening news, and we'll still use it. <laughs> but they also, the problem is, they clip it. Um, and I've seen some of these instances where they show you a 10, 15-second clip. They don't show you the, the quite eight or nine minutes that led up to that, which uh, there again is context that you really need. And I've, a friend of mine used this example, and I'll just throw it out there. If you see me walking across the room on video and my foot hits the dog and I step over the dog, did I just kick the dog or did I trip? Well, I know whether I did, and the dog knows whether I did. So you you actually have to do an investigation. You can't you can't solve something by looking at a piece of video. Yeah, or a clip video. Very yeah, very important point because you don't get to see the whole story. There's always a backstory. Matt, Matt, do you have a comment with regard to that? Matt, are you there? Hello. Delilah, I think we've is, lost is, him. <laughs> we lost, we lost Matt? I think his call dropped. Uh-oh. Well, hopefully he's, he's, he's calling back in. Um, oh. Well, okay, so so we'll see if we can get him back, um, you know, because we still have a few minutes here. And, uh, well, you know, in these last few minutes, a couple of things. I know that we, we can't, we, we don't have the magic pill here or the magic solution, but, Marty, uh, until Matt comes back with us, can you can you tell us from your perspective, what do you think from this point on needs needs to change so that we can begin to turn the tide of what's going on? I think the best insulator is for public trust. The best insulator is personal relationships. The police departments, the chiefs have to have personal relationships with the people that they are serving, and that's the only way, really, that you don't have misunderstandings or wrong assumptions jump to or call for action. And we do a variety of outreach to make sure that our public understands what we do. And and I'm glad you mentioned Ride Along earlier. That's one of the ones that we have a Ride Along program 
you can come ride for a shift with an officer. I encourage everybody to do that. Go see what anybody they do. Can? Don't anybody anybody can except for unless you're a convicted felon. Anybody else that you can come and ride in the car, and you sign a waiver, and for ten hours you go ride and see what those officers do. So I'm there. all the the yeah, the the, <laughs> the, the outreach and the personal mm-hmm. relationships. Like I have a group of ministers in town. They have my personal cell phone number. If they've got a if they have any question about what we're doing. They call me because they know me, and they have that relationship with me. You can't get right. that after the fact. That's that's ongoing and up front. Yeah, absolutely. I think the community, just to forge those relationships and to, to try to deter what people are seeing in the media because you know that your your community, uh, police officers are maybe, you know, are not doing what's being reported in the national news. So that that is truly very important. Do, do we have Matt yet? Back yet, Delilah? No, we don't. No. Oh, okay. Um, well, like I say, I think that um, this this is a topic that could kind of go on, um, you know, go on and on. And we, instead of kind of talking in circles, I think we've kind of hit some of the highlights in terms of the. Of the issue uh, of the issues at hand, and just for people to, for us to be able to create an awareness in general, uh, and to um, go and visit your local um, police department and get to know those people, um, I think d- does a lot um, to uh, maintain your credibility versus going online and and seeing what's being reported. Are there any are there any uh resources or links that you'd like to um relate Matt with regard to the the uh your department so that people in your area or people in North Carolina can refer to so that again you can get the word out and create the awareness about what what your department and like departments are doing I think you hit on it. Local and know your department and ask questions. It's okay. I encourage the public to ask questions. Why do you do things the way you do, officers? How, what's that procedure? What's the reason? Uh, many of the things that I saw at community meetings last year that was areas of concern was just simple misunderstandings. I I say ask those questions. They they should be happy to tell you why they do the way they do. Mm-hmm. But Frequently, isn't it that we don't go and visit our police? We only call them when we absolutely need them in an emergency. Is that not, is that not true? Or what do we need to do? We need to invite them to our homeowner association meetings or our, you know, our civic. Well, I can tell you. The answer. Go ahead. From my experience here locally, we, you know, our our police departments are pretty open, and I'm sure this is exactly what Marty's saying. If you need a if you want to have a sit-down meeting with them, in most instances, they will make the time to sit and talk with you. Um, and yeah. same thing, we have we also have county police departments and county sheriff's office. So, you know, we have a lot of different jurisdictions going on in our area. And everyone's always been very open to allowing the public to come in and meet with them. Um, and people need to just take advantage of that a little more, and they will come away with a totally different understanding. You may go in with a specific beef um, or a specific problem, but I, I can assure you the many times that I've done this that you come away with, with a totally different perspective and how the community and citizens and the police can work together. And I think that is probably the most important thing to get out on the, uh, on the public airwaves is that if we don't do that, then we're going to continually see this butting heads of opinions And because there's this side and that side. Well, the sides have to come together. Absolutely. I think that you, your point is is very well targeted and it's about – you know, becoming aware of, of who serves our community and and being in touch with them and and knowing what they actually do. So, uh, as a partial solution and to increase your awareness and education, please do go to your local law enforcement um, and uh, learn learn what they do and and learn what their priorities are. And so, 
unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up here. I'm sorry that Matt Matt's call was dropped, but we'll we'll catch up with him later. And I hope Matt, you and Marty, if possible, you can connect at, on on uh, like interest. And I want to thank you so much for for talking to us and being brave about talking about this very very difficult topic. And uh, so uh, we we will talk to you later. Uh, and uh, so we'll sign off for now. Um, Thank you, everyone, and be sure to pass our podcast along, and and we'll see you next Saturday. Thank you, Marty. Thanks.